0: dismiss our school-age kids towards the back, and as, they're, uh, as they are headed that way, I invite you to open your Bibles up to uh, the, uh, Paul's letter to Philippi, Philippians, so this will be in the New Testament, kind of towards the end, and uh we'll be starting that new letter today so we're starting philippians we'll be working through it for the next 12 to something i have no idea how long it'll take us uh i've been so encouraged by it but uh so we'll we'll jump in there today i remember um uh taking trips across the country as a little kid and uh probably from augusta to oil city morningsport where my grandparents were and I remember we would uh, get in some used van, probably that my dad was always trading in and out of these used vans. Always looked hideous, um, but but they had they had good sleeping room as a kid. And I just remember uh, being at some random truck stop. The truck o- the van overheated, and we would have to wait for the part. Right, that's the kind of. Hopefully a mechanic was closed. Hopefully we could find a part. We would fix the vehicle, take maybe a day or two, and then we would resume our trip. I remember multiple occasions that happening. And in a way, I kind of felt like that's how uh, COVID interrupted our lives. Like we were on a trip, we were headed somewhere. We seemed to have had good momentum. COVID broke the car. We waited for a few years, and now we're kind of back off. But then the more as we look at kind of the world we live in, it doesn't seem like we're starting from the same place. Maybe the better analogy is that we were on a ship and our engines failed and we drifted at sea for a couple years. Maybe we paddled a little bit, kind of felt like we were languishing. And now we're coming out of the fog and our engines are running again and it's time to resume the journey. But the problem is... The world we're in today is not the same world that we were in three years ago. In the three years or two and a half that we waited for COVID to disappear and it's still kind of hanging around, I feel like even as a church we have drifted. I read a story uh, this week about uh, some friends who wanted to sail from Hawaii to Tahiti um, as kind of like a a bucket list uh, list trip. And after a bad storm came up and flooded their engines, they drifted for 98 days. And in 98 days before they were rescued, they drifted 2,800 miles off course in 100 days. They drifted almost 3,000 miles in the wrong direction. And here's why I make this distinction before we kind of jump in today. Because if we just try to pick back up on the journey, like we were driving the car and COVID interrupted things, and now we're trying to return, we're going to end up in the wrong place because we have drifted. So the right next strategic step is to figure out, okay, where are we at? Who are we as a church? What is the world we're living in? What is the context in which we're doing ministry? And then make a plan to get to the place that God is leading us. Now, that doesn't change our mission as a church or your calling as an individual. Those things haven't changed at all. It just helps to know where we're starting from in order to get where we're going. And so we're going to jump in Philippians today. We were scheduled to start the Minor Prophets, and I am still excited about uh, teaching those. We're going to get to those later this year or next year But I started reading this little letter of Paul to the church at Philippi a couple uh, weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and it has encouraged my heart so much. I've been trying to read it. It takes about 12 minutes. I've been trying to read the entire letter every day and uh, just kind of put myself there and let the Spirit speak. It's been so encouraging to me, and I pray it's so encouraging to you. So clarifying, encouraging, a bit rebuking, but it's like fresh air to my soul, and I, I've needed it. So I'm going to encourage you to read it, and you can read it in addition to any plan you're already on, reading plan, 12 minutes while you're sitting in line waiting to drive through a Chick-fil-A, you can read uh, all 12 minutes or listen to it, right? You can hear it all. Some of us, when we uh, think of Philippians, uh, we think of uh, Tim Tebow and his eye black, uh, Philippians 4.13. You remember that? Anybody remember? This is what we think of. And this is like the verse that athletes get tattooed on them. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they've taken that verse way out of context. It's, it's about contentment through suffering, not being your best on a sports field. Um, but the book as a whole, some of the most beautiful and soul-stirring passages are in this book. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And these are just some of them. There's many more that might be familiar to you. But these are not throwaway promises of God for coffee mugs and cross-stitching. These are are lifelines. These are anchoring promises of the impossible God, of what he wants to do in the lives of his children. They're soul-stirring anchors. To those who've been adrift, they are wartime warnings that will save your life and reorient you and return you to a life of spiritual flourishing. And we're going to spend a lot of time today on the context, but here's just what this book has meant to me in the last month it's Paul's like persistent attitude to have joy in the midst of difficulty. All the things that he had walked through, all the difficult. He's in prison right here. He's already been beaten. He's been drifting at sea. I mean, so many bad things have happened to Paul. And yet in this letter, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord always. You're like, all right, Paul, that's a lot rejoice in the Lord. And then he said, in case you missed it the first time, let me say it again. And again, I'm going to tell you to rejoice. His persistent attitude to have joy, this idea of spiritual flourishing, this is what I prayed for Renzo last week. this is what i 've been praying for you. this is what i 've been praying for us as a church that we could walk in areas of spiritual flourishing no matter how difficult life around us got. You know we live in a world where you know some of our idols of this of our culture are our comfort and uh, success. And we think when we have seasons of difficulty, seasons of um, the unknown, seasons of trial and uh, dead ends, that, that we should take the same attitude as the world takes of being so frustrated and overwhelmed and overcome. And, and I too, that is my knee-jerk reaction when, when bad news comes. But Paul is saying here, he's pleading with this young church. Church, you can have joy no matter what is going on in your life because our joy is not rooted in our immediate circumstances. We've been adopted by the king of the universe and now we're called his beloved kids we've got peace that surpasses understanding we've got mercies that are new every day we've got spiritual gifts inside of us the holy spirit himself resides within us and enables us to join god in his mission so much to be thankful for so much so many reasons to have joy And yet you look at the church, not just our church, but just the church, maybe the church in the west, and we're all just kind of like, "Yeah, Like, what are we doing? Let me start with some context. I'm already preaching. Philippi was this little city with a lot of history. It was the capital of uh, Alexander the Great, who renamed it after his father Philip hence then becoming uh, Philippi. It became the capital city of the Greek Empire of 300 years before Christ. The Romans would eventually conquer the Greeks and in a civil war after Julius Caesar's assassination 40 BC, Mark Antony repopulated this city by allowing the defeated armies of Brutus and Cassius, if you remember your history at all, to settle there um, in Philippi. So it's Mostly a military town of retired warriors, really. It's 800 miles from Rome. It was declared a Roman colony. It flourished. They were very proud of their history. They were entrenched in Roman uh, political and social life. You're going to notice in this letter, Paul's going to allude to so many military and political structures as metaphors for the church. It was a medium-sized coastal city, about 10,000 people, but because it had... Of its location on the trade route, um, they a lot of them were well-educated. They spoke Latin. They worshipped the emperor. And they had a lot of different cultures that were taking root in this little city. Now, Paul planted this church 11 years before he writes this letter, which I thought was funny as we as a church were planted 11 years ago. He's writing to this church, and the church... Was rather famous because of how supernatural its start was. We're going to go back to Acts and look at that. In Acts 16, if you were with us when we went through the book of Acts a year ago, um, Go to chapter 16, and you can see how this place was started. We're not going to dive too much into into its history, but Paul had been on a missionary journey around the world, and he's come back to Jerusalem, and he's updated everybody on what he's seen and how the Gentiles are coming to Christ. And there was a big church debate whether the Gentiles could come to Christ, and as they came, what would they have to do? Would they have to look like Jews or not look like Jews? they have to follow Jewish customary law or not follow And so the decision was made. They didn't have to follow all the Jewish customary laws. And so Paul's getting ready to go back out on his second uh, journey. And he's trying to go back in the same direction he had gone before in mostly Asia and Asia Minor. But the Spirit of God would not let him. It says in chapter 16, after they had gone through Phygeria and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden, this is such a strange phrase in, in in our scriptures, forbidden by the holy spirit to preach the word in asia after they had come to mysia they tried to go to bithynia but the spirit of god did not permit them so passing through mysia they came down the troas this is a verse that's a bit shocking because they were forbidden to by the holy spirit to preach the word of god in this certain place after strengthening the church in the region paul trying to go southwest towards ephesus yet forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. So you see this in Paul. Maybe this is identify with you. Have you ever tried to do the right thing, but the doors just kept closing in front of you? See, Paul's idea was not to go to Philippi or Troas, where he started. It was at least his third choice for him. But it was the Spirit's plan to lead him there. Paul, so beautifully responsive to the Holy Spirit's leading, was willing to lay down his will and his plans for the direction that the Holy Spirit brings. Here's the point. Paul was guided by hindrance to plant this church at Philippi. And the Spirit often guides us as much through the closing of doors as he does through the opening of doors. You look through church history, you see this. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but God sent him to Africa. And William Carey wanted to go to Polynesia. God sent him to India. And Adonai Judson went to India, but God guided him to Burma. God guides us along the way just to the right place. And this is what happens with Paul. He's been frustrated, can't go, can't go, can't go. He ends up in Troas. And in a vision in the middle of the night in Troas, God made Paul's direction clear. This is what uh, we might refer to as the Macedonian call. A man appears to him in the night, begging him to come westward across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. This moved Paul and the team from Asia to Europe. It was the first missionary endeavor to Europe. The wisdom and greatness of God's plan was beginning to unfold. And in Paul's mind, he wanted to reach a few cities. In God's plan, he's going to reach a whole continent. Philippi is the first stop there, major city in that stop. They cross the Aegean Sea. He goes down to Philippi. It says in in verse 12 of Acts 16, from there we traveled to Philippi, the Roman colony, the leading city of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. That's a lot going on there. He's going to tell us what happened in those several days. This is an incredible church planting story. What happened in those several days was the supernatural work of God converting people from the domain of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. First was the woman named Lydia. And again, maybe you've heard of her name. Uh, as typical, Paul normally tried to go to the synagogue first and reason with the religious people. <clears throat> it's evident there probably was not a synagogue there. There was not enough believers there to have a synagogue. And so he went down to the river where he heard, right, that there was a, uh, a, a prayer meeting of sorts going on. He meets Lydia. Says that she's a seller of purple, that just means she's connected to the wealthy. She's a spiritual seeker, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Her life was radically changed. It goes on to tell us that her and her whole household uh, would be baptized the day after. She was persistent that Paul stay. Paul was just passing through, so here's this person to peace, Lydia. He goes to stay with her, her, him and his missionary companions, now staying with Lydia after this supernatural conversion. I love, too, that phrase. It says, the Lord opened her heart. And if you want to take a step in any sort of evangelism, this is the prayer. You pray that God would begin to open the hearts of people. This is what we prayed when we came to plant here, when we moved back to town. This is what I pray when I'm working in these coffee shops all over town, uh, I just pray, God, open someone's heart to your word today. So the first convert was Lydia, and then they encountered a slave girl. It says they were met by this slave girl, and this slave girl was, uh, had this spirit of uh, divination, and she was using this uh, demonic spirit basically as a psychic. And not telling people necessarily the future, but telling them things that happened in their past. Uh, She was bringing, it says, the scripture says, she was bringing her own as much gain through fortune telling. So she followed Paul and the missionary crew around. And uh, she kept seeing them when they would walk by in this little town. And she would yell at the top of her lungs. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And eventually, uh, you know, that's nice, Paul. Thank you for the hype. Yeah, thanks. You know, that's his his walk-up song, I guess, is this lady telling people who he is. But I love the text says that Paul became greatly annoyed with her. He's like, okay, enough. You know, you get to that place where you can handle so much of it, and you're like, okay, we're done with this. And so his response was not to go to another place. It was to cast this demonic spirit out. This is what it says in verse 18. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to that spirit, "I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her." And it came out of her that very hour. And so you see this supernatural work in her life. Now her owners are mad because they've lost, uh, you know, the 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 goose that lays the golden egg. They've they've lost their way to make money, and so they take Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers and they get cast in jail. So we've got uh, a seeker, Lydia. Right, This uh, uh, lady connected to the, to, to the wealthy elite. We've got this slave girl. And then thirdly, they're in jail, and we're going to see uh, the Philippian jailer. You may, have, you may remember this. This is the time when at midnight, they're in jail, and uh, they're praying and singing hymns to God. It, it says, if you read the whole passage, they're actually in stocks like not just handcuffs they're in the the wooden things that hold your feet and your legs in place and so you can't you've got to itch you can't scratch it your legs cramp up you can't stand up they'd been beaten terribly placed in stocks and this is where they're at and what are we going to do about midnight when we're in such a miserable position oh we're just going to sing hymns to god suddenly there's this great earthquake the foundation of the prison is shaken the doors just pop open and um, the jailer, when he wakes up, he sees the doors are open and knowing that if he doesn't do his job to keep these prisoners safe so they can stand trial and, uh, and face their punishment, that the most noble thing would be just to kill himself. And so he's, he starts trying to kill himself. But Paul cries out in a loud voice, verse 28, Do not harm yourself for we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling in fear, fails before Paul and Silas. They brought them out and said, This is what the jailer says, this supernatural conversion, this is amazing. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was listening when they were singing about the salvation of God. And I wonder exactly what they were singing. You know, Philippians 2 can contains this like uh this. Hymn that they would sing in the early church. Maybe they were singing some of the messianic psalms that they had certainly known about the salvation and rescue of God. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. They spoke the word to him, all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and said, Let's not wait till the morning, let's just go ahead and be baptized. They got baptized, he and his whole family. He brought them to his house, set food before them, and then took them back to the jail. If you read this story, the story, because the the, the the leaders were so scared, they said, just let them go. And Paul's like, no, you have beaten us as Roman citizens. We ain't just letting, you got to come down here and take us out of here, which was, it's an anyway, you've got this amazing founding of the church at Philippi. This is where we're going, because The three first believers in in the city, part of this new church plant, Paul the church planter is going to plant his church, is this woman named Lydia, the slave girl they encounter, and this Philippian uh, jailer. The Philippian jailer would go go on to be a major leader in the church. And it's such an unlikely crew to start the church. It sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? I think this is why Paul, Paul loved the church so much. You know, I know Paul's not supposed to have a favorite church, but I think this is it. When you read it, and as you read it, you'll, you'll just see. He just loved this church. The Jewish leaders of the day would enter, start their day with this prayer. Thank you, Lord, that I'm a man and not a woman. I'm a Jew and not a Gentile, that I'm free and not a slave. And in spite of that, that's their attitude, the Jewish leaders. This is the exact people that. God is going to use to start this new church he's going to use a woman not a man he's going to use a gentile the Philippian jailer who wasn't a Jew and he's going to use a slave girl and so in God's great wisdom he uses these people from so many random different walks of life that should have nothing to do with each other and he says okay you guys you you three are going to be the foundation of this new work in Europe. One of the first churches in Europe. It's, it's so beautiful as you read it. Just the unity in Christ, the joy in suffering. This new creed a new covenant starting this new church. A covenant of grace. And I think this is what is in Paul's heart 11 years later as he writes this letter. His tone is different. It's so familiar. Jump in with me in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ, Jesus, who were at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You already kind of feel the familial addressing. He doesn't name himself as an apostle here. He just, he's, just, he's a servant, and he's writing to the saints and the overseers and the deacons, and he's sharing grace with them. He would say in verse 3, we're going to get to this later, but I thank God in all my remembrance of you. See how, see how just tender that feels? I mean, can you imagine getting a letter like that? Man, every time I think of you, I just thank God for you. What's in Paul's heart comes through in this letter. The church is still supporting him while he's in prison. We find that out. Paul's in prison in Rome on house arrest, waiting on his appeal before Caesar. And this church is actually covering all his bills. And the occasion of the letter is to encourage them, reminding them of their identity, warning of them, of those who preach a different gospel. You're going to see that. Pleading with them to be unified. But there's three main pictures we see in here, and these might be familiar to you, that I want to kind of just overview 30,000 foot of the, of the whole letter, and then we'll spend the next 12 weeks kind of getting deep into it. There's three pictures, and it's the picture of a disciple of a family and a missionary. A disciple, a family, and, and, and a missionary. He's going to use so many different metaphors, but it keeps coming back down to these again and again. And these might be familiar to you as they're the core values of our church, of disciple, family, and missionary. And we didn't necessarily pull these out of, uh, out of Philippians, but really out of Ephesians. If you were back with us 11 years ago when we started this thing, we started with the book of Ephesians. And we came up with this mantra that we're a spirit-led family on mission, making disciples, really under those three pictures of disciple, family, and missionary. And I think they're essential to the Christian faith, is why Paul keeps using them, It's why Jesus used them. And I want to talk about these. First is identity of a disciple. This is a biblical theme that is used again and again and again. Maybe a more descriptive word would be spiritual mentoring. It's the process of allowing others to help you Mature in your faith. And maybe the key phrase here that we've been talking about a lot is just your next step of obedience. That's really what discipleship is. Discipleship is not a course you attend. It's not books that you read. Although All those things would be good. Discipleship really is you discovering your next step of obedience as you follow in the way of Jesus. Now, most of us aren't really good at either hearing the voice of God to take the next step of obedience... Or having the boldness to follow through. And this is why you need the other people around you. To encourage you in taking the next step of obedience. This is what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Basically, the theology and the teaching and the modeling or the way of life that you saw in me, that you learned from me when I was with you, when we were sharing meals together, when you saw us uh, evangelizing the city, of doing, doing hard work, of doing all the things it takes to plant a church, all those things that you saw in me, put those things into practice. And then the promise, and the God of peace will be with you. Or the peace of God will be so real and evident to you. This is a supernatural reward for the application of the spiritual truths that Paul taught. Now, James, in the book of James, the letter bears his name, he would be a little more clearer. He would just say, listen, don't merely just listen to the word. Do what it says. The next step of obedience. He would say in Philippians 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. One, it's amazing that Paul even says that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me. Imitate the example of those that you've seen who've heard the word and put it into practice. Friends, how do you determine who you want to become like in the kingdom of God? Who are you following, really? I mean, I know we're saying we're following Jesus. And we're following the words of Jesus. But God created the faith family. And we got a big family. Not just here locally, but all the saints and all the world of all time. What Hebrews would call this great cloud of witnesses, right? God created this huge family that we would help each other learn how to walk in the ways of Jesus. And this is really lost most on the church in the West. Because church, the gathering of God's people has become more of an event to attend than a lifestyle to adopt or than a family to belong to, than a way of life to pursue. When I first got really serious about following Jesus, my dad gave me this book called uh, like 50 Christians Every Believer Should Know or something like that. And my heart for the first time was so captivated by these people of God, they, I feel in a way that these people discipled me th- through their biographies and through what they wrote and through their journal entries. People like George Mil- M- Mueller, I- I've told you about him. He led a, uh, an orphanage in Great Britain, and multiple times he would gather the orphanage around. They had no food to feed the kids, but they would still all come to the supper table. This is this is amazing. And they would, instead of just calling somebody or, you know, let me, let me sell this in a garage sale, he would just begin to pray. Him and the other staffers in there and even the kids, they began begin to pray. And more than one occasion, they had begin to pray and someone would knock on the door and they would have bags of food. And I just, I remember that as like a 12-year-old reading this thing with George Mueller and saying, God, give me faith like George Mueller. When I have bad news, the first thing I want to do is try to strategize my way out of it. I want to text these people and call these people and call this donor, oh, we need some more money. And George Mueller, what was he? He was just going to pray. God, give me faith like that. We're an empty table around me and no food, and I'm going to start praying. Know that you're a good father in heaven who meets the needs of his children. Or people like Adonai Judson, the missionary to Burma, who served a decade with no converts. Two of his wives died. Three of his kids died to disease. And he kept faithfully preaching the gospel to people who didn't want to hear it. But it opened the door for the gospel that is still seeing results today. If you make your way over to Myanmar, you're going to meet people who are converted through this man's faithfulness. And I say, Lord, give me perseverance. Like Adonai Judson or maybe J. Hudson Taylor, who we named uh, our little guy Hudson after. A young missionary who is going to leave Liverpool and sail to Shanghai to an unreached country as a 21 year old single man i put one of these quotes that i love that's actually in my office he says china is not to be won for christ by quiet ease loving men and women the stamp of men and women we need is such as will put jesus china and the souls first and foremost in everything and at every time even life itself must be secondary And I read that as just a young man, thinking, God, give me such a passion for the lost. If I model my life after most Western Christians I see today, then I'm gonna be fine with the status quo, and I'm gonna status quo and live my life void of the supernatural and a life whose schedule is so filled with the frivolous that it's choked out by the third soil. And I'm not what I want. There's got to be more than that. I look at that. I know that's not it. You see these people in Scripture. You see these people in Christian history. And you see people even in this own room that would inspire you to greater faith. This is what Paul's talking about in discipleship. This is not just an ATM code that gets you into heaven one day. This is a paradigm shift, and we have to constantly be maturing, being conformed into the image. This is what Philippians even says, that he's going to continue what he has begun, conforming you into the image of Jesus. I look at Paul's life. Paul's not bored with his faith. Christianity is not a Sunday thing where I'm checking something in. He's singing at midnight, and an earthquake opens the jail, right? And he doesn't leave. He's spending nights at sea. Can you imagine spending nights at sea? You know, you're out for a little kayak trip in the bay somewhere, and then, you know, it pulls you out to sea. Kayak sinks, and you're just spending a couple nights there. Don't they think that would make you a different kind of of person? (laughs) He's being beaten and kicked out of cities. There's this riot in Ephesus. You can go back in the book of Acts and read it. This is, this is the craziest story. He's given the gospel. This riot breaks out. His friends take him out of the city, like, like, like through a secret Uber. We're going to get out of the city. And Paul's like, hey, I thought that was going pretty well. Why'd you guys pull me out? Let me back in there. That's what he says. Can I just go reason with them one more time? Paul's faith is not boring. It's on the edge of the supernatural. This is what I was talking about, our, our staff. This is what God's been doing in my heart. I get so comfortable with status quo faith. It's, it's not even called faith. Because there's really nothing that I'm necessarily in my everyday life trusting God for. I've got a bank account for that, and I've got a car that's going to do that, and I got a, a, I've got medical insurance that's going to take care of those things. What are we actually trusting God for? Do we serve a supernatural God that still works the supernatural? Or is this just our version of like social club? I've been reminded and I pray, this is my prayer for you this week, Lord, give us a taste once again of a supernatural God that does the impossible with his people. Because that faith is not boring. That faith stares down the dominion of darkness and brings light into it. Paul says here, hey, be mentored by my example so you don't just adopt the status quo. Friends, who are you following? Who is your example? Who's pouring into you? Paul says, pay attention to those who are living out a real faith in Jesus. Just think about it. Who in your life inspires you to greater faith? Go spend more time with those people. What biography could help you grow? What, what DG do you need to commit to so that so that You can actually walk in this faith that he's talking about. Who are you allowing to speak into your life? Left unchecked, we're all going to drift towards what our culture values most. We're going to become addicted to comfort. We're going to be people of materialism. We're going to chase after power. All those the opposite of the kingdom of God. Friends, hear my heart. Don't let your life drift there. Attach your life to those people who are pursuing God and invite them to speak hard truths to you. And many of you, we talk about this discipleship culture all the time, and many of you like, I'm, in, I'm being a disciple. Listen, when is the last time someone spoke a hard truth to you that it was hard to listen to? And if that was not last week, then you have not given anyone the opportunity to speak hard truth to you. Or unless you, you just killed it last week. You've got your acts so together that there's no blind spots and you're just cruising through life. Well, if that's you, come tell me afterwards because I want to hang out with you because I need some truth spoken into my life. I need people to encourage me. I'm tempted to lose hope. I'm tempted to give up. I'm tempted to look at the world as, 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 as it's getting darker and darker and just say, God, where are you at? I just lose hope. And I need somebody to speak truth to me and remind me, Luke, we still serve a God that does the impossible. Is this time change weekend? Everybody is so quiet. I know, listen, I haven't been up here in three weeks. And so, and so I and I had some extra coffee. So I'm y'all bear with me, but a little amen every once in a while, just so you're still awake, okay? Disciple. Listen, I'm inviting you to lean in. That's what I'm doing. I know it's summertime and we're on. Unch- I'm inviting you to lean in to people who aren't following Jesus perfectly. They're as broken as you are. But that you're going to commit together to speak truth to each other, to encourage each other, to raise the hope quotient just 10% in their life as they pursue God with everything that they have. What the question is, I think, is what is your next step of obedience? That's what discipleship, what's your next step? Some of you know very clearly what that is. There's some sin you've got to deal with. Some of you, you're not pursuing the heart of God. Some of you have come up with every excuse in the world not to be part of a spiritual family or not to be discipled by anybody or not to get in the Word or not to obey the Word. We are so good at self-justifying our own actions. What's your next step of obedience? That's this disciple thing that Paul's going to keep coming back to. Second is the family thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. What's Paul talking about? Can you imagine how hard this would be? It was started with the woman, the slave, and the Gentile, right? And they're pursuing what to this point had been only a Jewish, basically, founded idea of Christianity. And Jesus came in and totally disrupted that thing, too. But you've got the Jews and the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greek, the soldiers. And Paul appeals to them not just to get along with each other. You know what he says? Be of the same mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. And if you missed it the first time, and of one mind. Here's what he's saying. When you become a believer... Jesus becomes the greatest unifying factor of this new community. It's the only flag that we fly is the Jesus flag. They believe some radically different things when it came to secondary issues. And Paul is saying, listen, focus on the primary and be of one mind. And when you do that, you can contend for the faith in a very lost city. Friends, just hear my heart. I love you. We had the greatest opportunity to really be salt and light the last two years, and we missed it. Because we were debating about masks and politics. And my heart has never been more grieved. I mean this. And this is no slight to anyone here. But people are dying without hope. And they are so broken. They're literally killing themselves. The suicide rate is up 12 times. They're literally killing themselves because they don't have any hope. And by chance, one of them limps into a faith community like this one. And we're debating about politics. Where's the love of Jesus? Where's the grace of God? We are to be a grace people, united under the flag of Jesus. And we're debating the secondary issues. And listen, the secondary issues are important. But they are just so far less important than Jesus being the hope of the world, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And when anyone walks in these doors, I pray to God, they feel a community who is under that banner of Jesus and his love more than any secondary issue. The gift of Philippians is to remind us that Jesus is what unifies us, and our hope is not dependent on political parties or our circumstances in order to have unified joy in the gospel. Jesus is the flag. It's not Republican or Democrat or non—it's not even our denomination. It's not even our country. we're not even the American flag. Our first flag is the Jesus flag. He's our chief shepherd. He's our lead pastor. He's the one who's leading us. And yet we come up with all these secondary and tertiary issues that we want to just bring up and we want to make them the point. Are you Reformed or Arminian? Are you premillennial or amillennial? Are you missional or seeker? Are you charismatic or cessationist? Listen, all those things are secondary issues. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying they're not of the utmost important. And you could land on any one of every one of those issues that I just mentioned, and we can still be a spiritual family in this room. And we can still love, and we can still bear each other's burdens, and we still sacrifice, and we can still extend grace. You know the reason that we are attracted to a homogeneous kind of people that all look the same and vote the same and kind of live the same life is because we don't want to extend grace to people. As long as you look like me and you vote like me and you basically live mostly like me and we pursue the same things, I don't have to extend a lot of grace to you. But this is the very reason that Jesus planted this church at Philippi so different. It's the very reason, even in his own disciples. You know what? I'm going to get someone who wrote, works for the Roman government, Matthew, tax collector, and I'm going to get Simon the zealot, who is basically the guy who's trying to overthrow Rome through terrorism, and I'm going to bring them together and put them on the same team, and I really think Jesus made him, you know, room in the same room at Motel 6. I think he did. You guys are going to have to get it together. And. I mean, it is so hard for them to do, and they never get it. And Jesus says, no, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's about me. It's about me. He kept saying, it's about me. And you're like, okay, as long as Jesus is in the room. And then Jesus leaves the room. He leaves the world. And he says, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go and pray. And the Spirit's going to come. Paul calls him in Philippians the the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's going to come. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to bring power. And when you have that power, you're going to be actually able to fulfill the Great Commission. And you're going to be able to love each other better than you could love each other when I was on your team. Because now the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Does that make sense? So he tells everybody to go pray, go pray. Only, only a quarter of them actually show up to prayer meeting and pray. And, and they saw the Holy Spirit do this amazing thing that led to right Pentecost. In order for us to really be a family, we have to make sure secondary issues stay secondary issues. Preference issues and secondary issues stay there so they don't creep into the primary. Because when they do, they bring division unnecessarily. We see Paul appealing to this church that he loved to be reconciled. He even calls out two people. Now listen, you know it's a bad thing when Paul has to call you out in the Bible to be reconciled. There are two Powerful personalities, Eodia and Syntek, and he even says in chapter four, "I plead with you, ladies, to be reconciled in the Lord." Why would not Paul say, "You know what? You know I get it. Eodia, uh, man, she's hard to get along with. You know what, Syntek, you should just go find another church around the corner. Oh, because there was no other churches. This is the church." And so he appeals to them. He actually uses the word entreat, was the military term. I am begging on behalf of God for you to get over your personality difference and to be family together. That's what he's saying. Underneath all of these beautiful pictures and things that Paul is saying that we want to put on coffee mugs is real turmoil. And he's appealing to them to be unified under Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of you. Here it is again, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Listen, this is harder to do than it's ever been in my lifetime. Our culture is canceling anyone who believes differently in anything. It really is nuts. No one can disagree with anyone else. Where is the maturity? I feel like our culture is just a bunch of three-year-olds. Not mine. I, mine. What unites them is the Spirit. Spirit. The same spirit that's in them is the same spirit that's in me. That's a miracle. That means we are a faith family together forever. We live in a society that values everything on subjective personal feelings and external identity markers. And to try to build a united spiritual family when the entire culture and world around us is screaming about their feelings and their preferences of those things being of utmost importance, it seems impossible. Well, it is without the Spirit. It's impossible without the Spirit of Christ inside of you. Friends, you have more in common with a sex slave that lives in a third world country who is a believer in Jesus than you do your actual neighbor who may vote like you and look like you and work at the same company who's not a believer. Does that make sense? You're going to spend all of eternity with the, with the former. The only way to overcome all of this division is to have a greater encounter and be filled with the Holy Spirit. To recategorize our preferences to be just that, their preferences. And we are not going anywhere. We are standing together in unity under the identity of Christ being formed in us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. We, I wish we had more time here. We will take more time on this passage. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Third picture is this idea of a missionary. It, it's in every chapter. We find in chapter 1 where Paul's talking about people who are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons. And certainly this is not uh, ideal. They're, they're preaching for their own glory, basically. They're preaching to be popular. And Paul kind of sighs as you you read it. We're not going to get into that passage today. We'll we'll get there eventually. Paul sighs, and he just says, man, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, then I'm good. You might not be doing it perfectly or even with the best motives, but if your life and your words are proclaiming Christ to the hopeless around you, then that's a good thing. He gets more clear. Chapter 2, verse 14, talking about how we live to proclaim Christ. Man, this is, this, is, this is an equal opportunity offender. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Wait, I mean, all things? Did, does he know anything about a heat index of 114? Does he know anything about the bridge being down for the past 18 years and everybody having to drive 50 miles around there? do the, he know anything about the gas prices? Do you know anything about the divided states of, of America? Does he you know anything about the family that I'm in or my extent? Do you know any, Oh, yeah, he knows all about those things. And he says do everything without grumbling. So where do the kids and teenagers in the room? Right? Don't grumble. My kids aren't in here. Somebody tell them in the back, okay? Or disputing. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is it. It's so beautiful. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Be careful how you live, Paul saying. No grumbling, no disputing, no fights over the secondary things. Because if you live like that in unity with the cause of Christ as your focus, you're going to shine like bright lights in the midst of darkness. You're gonna be the straight thing in a crooked and twisted generation. Friends, this is why we're here. To take this beautiful gospel that has revolutionized our life, the hope that we found and to take it to the world. This is a call to align our vision of the good life to what Jesus calls the good life to realign our passion, to realign our pursuits, he shows us how the person, how knowing and being known by Jesus is more beautiful and more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. Now, I understand some of you are a little jaded on that, and you've had some religious experience that have really hurt you, and you blame part of that on Jesus, and he actually had no part of it. He hates it as much as, as, as you do. But my prayer this week, the past couple of weeks, as we've even talked as a, as a staff, me and Jason spent a couple days this week, just really praying for this, that as you go through the rest of the summer and we walk through this book, that Jesus would recapture, that he would captivate your heart and your mind once again, that you would have such a, such a life-altering, fresh understanding of who Jesus is this is his even prayer that we're going to get to in chapter 2 this is why he's praying that they would have this knowledge and understanding of the love of God let me close with this I'm sorry that we've all felt like we've been drifting a little bit and we've been, we've been a little lost and we've been trying to figure things out Some of us have been really hurt. Many of us feel stuck. These past few years have really beaten a lot of people up. I really am sorry about that, but we can't just sit here allowing our feelings and the world's pursuits to determine where we end up, that we're just immobile and jaded. Jesus is calling us, this is what Jason preached on last week, just to come to him. This is the call. Oh, you are weary and burdened? Oh, just come to me. Be fitted with me. Be be yoked in with me because I'm going to do the heavy lifting. I'm going to do all the pulling. All, All you have to do is just trust me. Follow me. Jesus is calling us to inviting us to be perfectly known and unconditionally loved. He's speaking. He's telling you, listen, I see you. I love you. I know. Come to me. Come be healed by me. Come find rest in me. And then I've got some exciting things for us to do together. Listen how Paul closes this letter, and and I'm done. The the band can come up. I feel like we could keep going another hour. I know you would all leave, but chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, I'm not speaking of being in need. I'm in prison. I'm not in need. And I've learned that no matter what situation I am in, I can be content. I can have joy. We get to rely on the living God living inside of us through his spirit, teaching us how to be over our circumstances and not under them, teaching us how to find joy in the midst of heartache because God is with us. Can you imagine asking Paul just in this letter, Hey, Paul, how's, how's it going? He's like, Oh, man, I'm, I'm flourishing. Wait, wait, Paul, I heard, I heard you were in prison. He said, oh, I am. I thought you asked how I was doing, not where I was. I'm not dead yet. My mission's not over. I can do all things through Christ. I'm flourishing. There's a new soldier coming to Christ every week. As a matter of fact, there's been a church started in Caesar's own household. They're meeting in his palace. They're having church there. How amazing is this? Can you imagine such joy and confidence in the Lord? Friends, you've got to get this truth in you. I encourage you again to read it every day, at least part of it. I want us to pray, and you can just bow right where you're at. We're going to have communion in a minute, but I just want you to confess to the Lord what's been going on in you. Maybe you feel a bit languishing or lost or drift or confused. Maybe it's been just mediocre, the status quo. And I just pray that just tell the Lord how, how you've been feeling. Confess to Him those things, bring them to Him. Maybe you've been a real cause of the division because you're making secondary issues primary issues. You just need to ask forgiveness of the Lord, and then when. When we leave in a minute, you need to go ask forgiveness of whoever you offended. We just ask the Lord to speak to you. If we've gathered this morning and don't hear from the Lord, we have wasted our time. Lord, would you speak? I'm ask the prayer team that's here if you would just gather in the back, if people want to pray. And we're going to take communion and you don't have to be a member of our church here to take communion, you do have to be part of God's family. If there's been a time that you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to participate. Just come down front and take the little cup and partake of it. Friends, I want you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. What's what's your next step of obedience? What's he revealing to you? I'd love to pray for you about that. You might want to write that on your little card and put it in the basket or meet us in the back god would you do what only you can do i pray for our church jesus i pray that we are a spiritual family that loves each other's that bears each other's burdens that although we might have far different ideals on secondary issues that we can come together and be family pray. bring conviction and healing and encouragement Us know what our next step is as we leave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just come when you're ready. We're going to sing in just a minute. Some of the prayer teams in the back if you need to pray.